This episode of Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is brought to you by Hoosier Devil, supporting and promoting Roots music in Western North Carolina and beyond. Owned and operated by Maggie Rainwater, Hoosier Devil offers a variety of services, including graphic and web design, publicity, and social media management to promote your band, album, or event. Visit them on social media or at HoosierDevil.com. That's H-O-O-S-I-E-R-D-E-V-I-L.com. Hoosier Devil. Welcome to Walls of Time, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. Musician, producer, songwriter, performer, Carl Jackson is an artist on many fronts. From his time as a teenager playing on the Grand Ole Opry with Jim and Jesse McReynolds to his career with Glenn Campbell and his time as an award-winning Nashville producer and songwriter, Carl Jackson is gracious about his storied career. Here is part one of a two-part interview with Walls of Time host Daniel Mullins. After a barbecue lunch in Nashville, Tennessee, Carl tells stories about some of the biggest names in country and bluegrass music, an artist that does a lot of everything and does it well. Here is part one of Carl Jackson, Music Renaissance Man on Walls of Time. So, Mr. Jackson, you're known as a picker and a singer and a songwriter and producer. Uh, along with many other things, but among those roles, is there one in particular that you see yourself as above all the others? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. I've had a lot of people over the years ask me, you know, what was my favorite thing to do out of those things you named, you know. And I think uh, the blessing for me has been to be able to do all of those things and a combination of those things. Kind of like I think I think there was a time certainly when I could have I could have gotten into the scene here in Nashville of doing nothing but sessions, yeah. and I could have done very well at it, and uh, I did a lot of sessions, but I didn't like I didn't want to do three sessions a day, you know it just I don't know I'd come out of the studio after doing three sessions and just have a headache like crazy from headphones all day long. It wasn't something I wanted to do, but it wasn't something I wanted to totally give up either. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I wanted to, uh, you know, make a difference producing records. And I was blessed to be able to play on other people's records and sing on so many other people's records and travel the road some. For years, travel with Jim and Jesse, of course, and with Glenn Campbell, do the whole road thing and then kind of get out of that and turn down a bunch of road gigs, you know, because, no, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to do this. I want to be able to, to do this whole, this whole big thing, this whole all involved all in music, yeah. but all of it and kind of the, so usually my go-to answer is the combination of all of that yeah. is what I consider the true blessing and the, and the, you know, it always gave me the best feeling. Why do you think that in the, um, I guess in our culture or society in general, but in the music business, it seems to a point as well where people want people to focus on one thing and be, be specialized, whereas you come along, kind of break the mold and just want to do everything and do it all well. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate the compliment of, of doing it all well. That means a lot that, uh, that, that you say that or and hopefully people think that. But uh, I don't know. It's just kind of always the way I approached it, you know. And, and it, it evolved over the years. I mean, uh, when I went with... You know, I went with Jim and Jesse when I was 14 playing banjo. And, it, and at that point, I can't honestly say I had 
thoughts or dreams of being a songwriter or, or being a, you know, a, I don't know, even really a guitar player. I can, I remember, uh, you know, I played banjo, you know, and I played a little guitar and a little mandolin and stuff like that. But uh, I can remember getting that first little gut string guitar when I was with Jim and Jesse. I bought it at a, I think it was, I want to say it was Morell's Music Store, maybe in Livonia, Georgia, or Val, Valdosta, Georgia, I believe. Some, somewhere, it was something, something like that. And uh, man, I get on that bus and jerry reed was my hero you know he and chet atkins and i'm i'm listening to all this stuff and all of a sudden i'm working on on that and the guitar playing came together you know and and so one thing kind of led to another you know when i got signed at polygram as a songwriter after after uh after being with glenn campbell for so many years <clears throat> actually was still with glenn you know in 19 i left glenn in 1984 but i was with polygram before then and i started we started doing demos and uh just it kind of just fell in my lap to produce those demos you know and all of a sudden i'm like well wow this is kind of this is kind of cool you know and people are like well you do this man we want you to play on this and will you do this for us and and i can remember uh i can remember several people going man who who produced that demo you know so that kind of evolved into the whole production thing then you know so i don't know that so much i've always just had this you know, I mean, if I set out to do one thing, it probably would have been to, you know, play center field for the Yankees, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but it was, but it was the music thing just kind of evolved into doing a lot of things. And that, that became my joy, my pleasure to be able to, to be a part of a lot of different things. And, you know, I mean, gosh, I had dreams of singing with Emmy Lou and, you know, and of course then that came together, just fell in my lap, you know, and, then getting to sing with Dolly and Linda Ronstadt and Tammy Wynette and on and on. You know, people that you just admired. But, you know, I didn't set out to go, oh, I'm going to sing with all these people. Or I'm going to I'm going to produce all these people. I, that was it. But it just came together. And I think the uh, my willingness to go for all of it and my just in, enjoyment of a lot of different things, you know. It's like I, I'm the same way in in life, you know, I got, you know, I love to collect baseball cards and I, and I love to metal detect and I love to fish and I love, you know, it's like, and I, you so I'm constantly finding time to try to get them all in because yeah. I love them all. You know? How do you so. make time for all this stuff? <laughs> you don't, <laughs> you don't, you know, but, uh, you know, I think again, it's, it's, that's just kind of the answer. You know, it's, it's, I get a lot of joy in being able to, to do, a lot of different things and I've been so blessed to do that so many people have let me be a part of their life let me be part of their music ask me to be a part of their music uh you know let me produce a record on them you know take my word for it that uh, you know you know yeah we want to be a part of that because Carl's doing it we know he'll do it right that that means more to me uh in in the production side of things than anything you know when people will trust you with their with their music. Yeah, with their craft and their yeah, art. Yeah. Their craft. When did you, how old were you when you first got the job with Jim and Jesse? I was 14. Now, were you uh, just kind of ate up with the banjo at that age? Absolutely. That like your I mean, first I, love? I, absolutely. I mean, I can remember literally dreaming of playing the banjo. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, my dad, uh, my dad Lee, and my uncle Burgess, or Uncle Sock as we called him, 
and my uncle Pete, my uncle Pete, they had, they had a little band called the country partners. And, uh, you know, I became a part of that band as soon as I could play at all. But, uh, one of my first, uh, you know, my first influences obviously were Earl and, you know, and Alan Shelton and Don Reno and all those great guys, you know, but, uh, there was a guy named Bud Rose who came down to uh, Aliceville, Alabama, played banjo with uh, Carl Saussman and the Green Valley Boys. And Carl Saussman, had a, he had a TV show on WTOK TV in Meridian. <clears throat> and we'd watch that show, of course, every week. And, uh, and before Bud... Uh, there was uh, Fred Richardson played with him. Spark plug, he was known as. Played. That's a that's a good banjo yeah, nickname. <laughs> yeah, and I was uh, I was fascinated with banjo playing, and I wanted to play. And my uncle found out that Bud was given a few lessons once he came down and worked with Carl, and so he decided he was going to go take some lessons from uh, from Bud Rose. And at that point, I decided I just had to also. So I can remember going over there. I think I went over there the first time. I think my uncle took me over there, and then my dad took me a time or two after that. And, and then Bud moved away, and he sent me a tape or two. You know, we kind of then it became sitting in front of the record player after that to learn. But uh, that was that was a great time. I, I was totally <laughs> I was ate up with it. <laughs> put on banjo. I mean, I come home from school, and I'm sitting in front of the record player. You know, slowing records down and trying to learn how they did it. You know, what, what about the banjo appealed to you? I don't know. I really don't know. It was just the sound. It was just, it still does to this day. I mean, I just absolutely love it. You know, you, there's there's just something about it that just flies all over me when I hear it. You know, I love it. And, uh, and I wanted to do it. And so I was determined I was going to do it. First banjo I had, I remember we couldn't find a five string. And my dad got a, he found a little four string. and uh, And I was able to just learned a little forward roll on it. Bud showed me in the mood, I remember, which was just a forward roll over and over. That was one of the first things, that and Saints Go Marching In. And then not too long after that, I was able to get a, an RB100. And then I went from from that. I, I remember getting a, a Master Tone uh, RB250 when I was 10. And uh, I was I was already playing, you know, pretty Pretty doggone good by then, I guess. Yeah. yeah. When I look back on it, I go, well, it was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. Um, uh, you, you mentioned Alan Shelton. Oh, Just yeah. one of the best. Oh, yeah. What did, you know, and how he was one of your, your influences. Sure. What did it mean for you then to get the banjo job with Jim and Jesse at such a young age? Man, it was just a, it was the, you know, toward the beginning or the start of just so many uh, blessings that have fallen into my lap of of things that kind of have ties, if that makes any yeah. sense. Yeah, Alan was a he was a hero, man. I loved it. I loved his play, and I loved that sound he got. and he, And he was so unique, you know. So he, so much different than yeah. than, than, than Reno and Scruggs yeah, and yeah, JD so and Sonny and all of them. And I yeah. loved it, you know. And uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, here my dad is over in Atlanta studying for his first class license, and you know, and and he sees. Jim and Jesse over there, and then they they come and they perform at uh, uh, Reform Mississippi to, at a little high school auditorium down there, and my and my dad insists that I go to the show, you know, and I mean I'm wanting to stay home and and then listen to the Ole Miss ball game. It's on a Saturday night, you know, and <laughs> and uh, but he talks me into going, and we go there, and 
you know, they get me up on stage and uh, let me bring me out and let me play with them, you know. And then I remember Daddy telling them, and I don't mean to jump away from your question. No, no, back no. To Alan, it, it'll get fine. back to Alan, but, you know, it's like, a, you know, of course, Alan was playing with them, you know, and uh, they bring me out and let me play something. And then, you know, Dad talks to Jim later, you know, Jim and Jess later, and he, he tells them, if you guys, you know, if you're ever – if you ever get to a place where you need a banjo player, you know, please keep us in mind, you know, like if, if Alan is not going to be, you know, whatever it was yeah. though, you know, but, uh, and, uh, that, that point awry, you know, it, it came about, uh, all of a sudden there, you know, Jim McReynolds calls one day and Hey, did you, did you mean that? You know, we'd, we'd like to take, you know, we'd like to offer Carl this job, take him out on the road with us. And, and my parents were so, and they could be. They were so trusting of Jim and Jesse. They were just such good people, you know, yeah. and, and they really were good, good people. But, again, it just fell it fell into place, you know, and all of a sudden here I am, you know, waving goodbye to them out that bus window and going on the road with Jim and Jesse. And, and I think the first trip was about two weeks or something, and, man, I was homesick. Were, were you intimidated or, or scared at all of uh, no. leaving that first time? No, scared wouldn't have been the word. I mean, uh, but I can still see my sister standing there crying, you know, and, and my mom and dad. And I know how proud they were that I was getting to do that. But at the same time, you can imagine your 14-year-old is is driving off with people you just met. Essentially. Well, I mean, yeah, you yeah. know, you know I mean, yeah. we, we knew them. Yeah. We knew them. You know, there had been a lot of contact in between then, and it was – like I said, I don't know. It was a different time. It'd be it'd be harder to do that now, probably. Yeah. But uh, but we did it, and it was the right move. It was they were great people. They became basically family too, you know, and and uh, still to this day. And it was just it was one of those things that just the, the puzzle piece fell into place, yeah. you know. And, and it, the whole story like that continues that way. You know, all these heroes and all these people that I loved so much and dreamed of even meeting, you know, then that that was just kind of, you know, one of one of the first ones. Yeah. There's Jim and Jesse. I loved them. All of a sudden, I'm playing banjo with them. What were some things that, that you learned from Jim and Jesse being at such a young age playing banjo with them on the road? <laughs> oh, gosh. That's, that's you know, uh I don't know. I mean, I think I learned maybe a lot. I, you know, whole the whole backup thing on banjo now has changed a whole bit. Now you're supposed to just play all the time, you know. I mean, if, if I'd have done that then, you know, <laughs> Jim would have given me the evil eye the whole time. You know, it's like, <laughs> wait a minute, you don't cover up the vocals all the time, you know. You kind of take your turn on backup, and then you play rhythm, you know. It was kind of the, the style back then, especially with, you know, with what Alan did and stuff, you know. And, uh, but, uh, you know, that learned a lot of things, just learned to be, uh, good to everybody. You know, Jim and Jess were always so kind to people. Uh, and I saw that and, uh, and of course I saw that, you know, I learned that from my folks too, but I just, I just think that I've been so, I, I keep using the word blessed, but it's true to be around, be around good people and to learn from them and see how they treated people and, how they were not just great artists, but they were good people. Yeah. Do you think that uh, that that made a huge impact on your willingness to stay in the music industry as as long as you have? Because some people don't have stories that are as as I, as 
as yeah. wonderful as they don't have great experiences right off the yeah, bat, especially yeah. at a young age. And sometimes it can really change their perception of the whole industry. It probably, it probably did. I mean, you know, I've never, I've never known anything else and uh, knock on wood. The experiences have been just so good. Yeah. Once again, I just think, you know, God's just had his hand on all of it. You know, he's, he's answered uh, a lot of prayers with yes, <laughs> you know, for me. You know, and sometimes he, sometimes he answers no to to things we all ask for. Uh, he he answers all of them. Sometimes it's just no. But man, he's given me a lot of yeses. And every day I try to be. Uh, my prayers are. I always try to start my prayers with thanks, rather than asking for something something else. Because, really, I mean, if he never gave me another blessing, it's it's been amazing. What about Jim and Jesse's style and sound do you think made them so unique, especially in, in their era? Well, I mean, you know, you had that instrumentally, of course, you had that Jesse. You know, there's this there's this guy that didn't just invent one style that nobody else does. He invented two styles that nobody else does. And, I mean, was a master. Show off, yeah, right? I mean, a show-off. You know, he was like, he was... Oh, such an innovator on Manlin. I mean, you know, the whole cross-picking thing. I mean, really, I mean, there's a few guys that do it a little bit and, do and you know, do it well. You know, he showed me how to do it. I can do it a little bit, but not nobody, like him. nobody can touch Jesse <laughs> on it, you know. And the whole split-string thing where he's playing harmony with himself on the, on the for people that don't understand it, he's, he's literally splitting the strings on the Manlin that are so close together and playing harmony on those two strings that are close together, you know, which, you know, people that, people that are listening to this hopefully know what I'm talking about on a mandolin. But, uh, but anyway, uh, that's just, uh, that's something that's really hard to do, especially the way Jesse does it. You know, I mean, I can put my fingers on it. I know how to do it. He showed me how to do it and I can do it, but you know, I have to kind of put my fingers in place and then just kind of like, you know, do it, do it really slow and stuff like that. Man, he can jump all over the neck and just immediately go to that. It's, it's fascinating. And then play cross picking on top of that, you know. I mean, he's he's just amazing. And their their vocal harmonies, of course, were, you know, there was a lot of, you know, influence from the Louvins and stuff. But uh, and gosh, Jim's voice, how pure, you know, just natural tenor that was just so crystal clear and beautiful, you know. And Jesse's lead singing, wonderful. They were just a great team, man. They they always looked like a million dollars, you know. Had those suits immaculate, those, those and the things. hair. Oh yeah, the, oh yeah, yeah. The, uh, the gospel hair, yeah, really. Yeah. Did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they were they were really good to be around musically, and uh, it's just just people, you know. Good folks. What did you learn from Jim and Jesse about standing out from the crowd and making sure you had their own, your own sound? Because that's something that they were, it seemed like they were really conscious about on making sure they sounded different than everybody else. You know, I don't, I, I, I hear people say that and talk about that and you ask about it. You know, I don't know. I think a lot of those, those unique things, they come from, from the, from the guy above, you know, it's just kind of built in. You're just naturally unique. You know, they, they, they just had something that nobody else exactly had, yeah. and they did it better than anybody else. And, you know? and maybe they were more in tune with, with focusing on what unique abilities they had versus trying to replicate 
yeah. the abilities of someone else. They were. Because some, some people just, it's almost like they don't get that. You That's know? right, yeah. Some people, I think they, I don't know, maybe the things happen where they are more influenced by, or maybe they, you know, they're influenced by somebody else's music and they kind of want to copy that and yeah. learn that rather than just maybe taking everything they hear and just everything they hear in their head too. I mean, you got you got to realize that. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of things, you know, there's, a lot of people that have ability to play music or have a bit, but do they really have the ability to hear it in their head before it happens and, yeah. and do it themselves? Maybe, you know, yeah. I think Jim and Jesse heard all that stuff in their head before they, you know, yeah. it's the way we're supposed to sound, you know? Yeah, totally. yeah I think that happens with a, uh, with a, a lot of the, the great artists. They just, it's just there. It's inside them. It's just a matter of getting it out. Yeah. It's, it's almost like they maybe their influence, they had more internal influences than external influences. Absolutely. I think that's yeah. a good way to put it. I think that's a good way to put it. And, and of course that's the same in, you know, in every case. I mean, you know, take the, you know, the Osborne brothers and, and, and the Lubin brothers on and on. They all had their in, internal influences that just, well, that's, that's just the way I do it. You know, Stanley Brothers. I mean, how unique is that, you know? It's like nobody else sounds like the Stanley Brothers. Well, I mean, you you, you can. You can, but, you're but it's, not, just not, it's not the same. Not quite. Not quite. <laughs> you, you mentioned a bunch of different brother duets. The McReynolds Brothers, the Osmond Brothers, the Stanley Brothers. What about brother singing and brother-style harmony is so special? Oh, I think that's just a... There's one place you can always go back to, and it's just God given. I mean, you you're talking about brothers, you know. So it's naturally they're gonna, you know, how we we look a little bit like our parents, we sound a little bit like our parents, all that. So you know, siblings, it's just a it's just a natural thing. I think that ha- I think that happens, and it's it's really a harmony that can't be it can't be beaten. Yeah, you, know, you can't. Jim and Jesse remembers the uh, of the Opry at the oh, time yeah. you went with them, right? What was that like as a wide-eyed teenager getting <laughs> to walk the halls of the Grand Ole Opry playing with Jim and Jesse? It was good. It was good. Uh, the first uh, the first times I played with them on the Opry, of course, we're at the Rhyme, and you know, uh, I've got I've got a picture or two from from those days at the Rhyme, and you know, it was it was exciting. I I had been up there when I was uh, about ten years old. Well, it was ten years old. My dad. Uh, brought me up and somehow got us, I don't know, somebody got us backstage at the Opry. And, and uh, I remember we, uh, they set me up on the, in one of those dressing rooms back there. There was only a couple, you know, they were, they were hot, man. There was no air conditioning. I mean, but they, I set up on the little shelf there in the dressing room with my banjo. I had bought that day at Hughley's music store here in Nashville, that RB250 I talked about earlier. And I played all night long. I mean, everybody on the Opry comes back there and wants me to play something for them. And, and uh, they're all trying to get Ott Devine, who was the manager of the Opry at the time, to let me go out and play something on stage. And he absolutely refused. And I mean, he, he, he wouldn't do it. He, would, he said, no, he's too young and he doesn't have, he's not in the union. That was his excuse. I mean, Joe Stewart literally went and got him. You know, he, he wasn't going to come back and hear me, but Joe Stewart went and got him basically by the shirt collar and said, yeah, you're going to go hear him. <laughs> and and he, he brought him back there and he did listen to me play a tune or two, but he still wouldn't let me on. So it made George Morgan mad. And George took me over to the Ernst Tub record shop. And there's a picture that I really treasure, you know, of, of me standing there and George Morgan's got his hand up over my head you know, and I'm playing something, and Charlie Leuven's playing rhythm guitar wow. with me, you know, which is 
here we go with more of those ties. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, did, I didn't mean to jump forward. Oh, no, no, you're at, fine. Finally, at, at 14, then when I go with Jim and Jesse, you know, I get to actually appear on the Opry. You know, did that, did it, was Ott still the manager then? You know, I don't remember. Because that had to, if, if so, it had to make it a little bit sweeter. So yeah, stop but, me now. Yeah, yeah, stop me now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't remember if he still was. He probably was. He probably was. But uh, yeah, I finally, I got to be out there. And I can't remember. I'm sure Jim and Jesse probably featured me on a tune or we played an instrumental or something. I can remember it was it was a great experience. What were some of your uh, your fondest memories or some of your best stories from the Opry back in those days? <laughs> oh gosh, I don't know. I don't know that I could really. The that one at ten years old was was the one that really really stands out in my mind. Before even before Jim and Jesse uh, of being back there, I can remember you know String Bean and Margie Bowes and George Morgan and all the oh, cousin Jody. All these people coming back and, and listening to me play and just standing there. And, I, you know, there's a picture or two I have from that, of me sitting there on that. And uh, I remember Carl Salsman was with us, too. He and his wife, Louise, they were with us, my mom and dad. And uh, I can remember seeing Dolly the first time, you know, walking around back there and as a as a 14-year-old, you know, later on. <laughs> you ain't going to forget that. She'd heard about 20 years old. Believe me, that's that's pretty well in your mind forever, you know. <laughs> it's like, flat and scrug? No, nah, man. <laughs> no. no. Oh, I have man. now seen the light. You, yeah. you probably saw that when you closed your eyes for the next few months. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, she was, and she was so sweet. Wow, so sweet. Always has been, and such a dear friend now. But uh, wow, it, lots of <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff like that. Just, but it's it's one of those things. that's kind of overall memories. You know what I mean? There's so many things that you know. Probably somebody else could sit and tell stories, and I go, Oh yeah, I remember yeah. <laughs> remember that. But just it's it's almost like the uh, the picking and choosing. You know, what do you prefer to do? You to pick, sing, produce, whatever. It's, it's, it's this big, big box of memories, you know, that I treasure so much, you know. Do you think the, uh, the encouragement that those early Opry stars showed you both at 10 and then when you showed up with Jim and Jesse, do you think that is uh, something that maybe impacted why you're so keen on encouraging and supporting uh, young pickers and singers these days? Well, I, I, I certainly think it could be. Again, I think it's just something that naturally happens. I cherish that. I absolutely love to be able to uh, to promote somebody like you know Colonel Isaac Moore, yeah. you know the Church Sisters, Jaylee Roberts, you know, uh, just incredible young talents that I mean they got such a great future ahead of them if they can. The only thing they have to come up with is patience, you know, because it's there. It's there for them. It's going to happen. I can't predict how big a superstar they're going to be, or you know. But if they want to continue to make their living in music, it's right. They've there. got it in them. They've yeah. got it, and and they they can they can go the rest of their life doing great music. Just have to make sure they do great music and don't sell out trying to get that reach for that star, you know. And and they will. What what did that mean to you to have all these? Um these veteran artists you grew up listening to on the Opry take the time to, to listen to you and encourage you and support you. Oh gosh. It means the world, you know, it, it means the world to me now when I go out there, you know, all these 
these these people that I you know grew up loving and stuff you know Bill Anderson and you know people like that who you know you run into them and hey Carl how you doing man it's good to see you, you know it's like you know I'm not a household name I'm not a you know I'm not a member of the Opry I'd love to be but I'm not but they almost treat me like I am you know and that that means the world to me it means a lot to me that they pay attention to the things that I've tried to do and and the music that I've tried to make, the difference I've tried to make, the help I've tried to give people. That means a, that means a lot to me that that people, uh, you know, when, and when I say people, a lot of them know about that. Uh, and a lot of them show that to me and tell that to me. That means a lot. You know, the average fan may not know that, but it, it kind of me, means just as much to me that, that they do, yeah. you know. fellas it's time to care about your hair i was just like you doing my hair meant hairsprays and gels that would either leave my hair crunchy or greasy so what would i do i'd throw in a ball cap on my way out the door and call it a day rather than fool with my hair then i found samson's hair care their hair pomade is the best truly it has a matte finish so your hair doesn't look wet and oily and it's made with essential oils and other all natural ingredients has an all-day hold as well so you can be confident that your hair will look as good in the evening as it did when you left the house and it smells great too great hair is a staple in bluegrass just look at del mccurry and larry sparks samson's knows this that's why they're offering walls of time listeners 10 percent off visit samsonshaircare.com and use code bluegrass to save 10 percent on your order it's like samson from the bible his hair was legendary and now yours can be too samsonshaircare.com code bluegrass at checkout to save 10 percent off the best hair pomade you'll ever buy that's samsonshaircare.com code bluegrass and now back to walls of time when did you first meet glenn campbell uh first met glenn campbell wow well i was in uh i was in uh, columbus ohio at uh at the state fair and how that happened was i was in columbus ohio to form a band called the country store with jimmy goodrow Bill Rollins and Keith Whitley. We formed this band. You know, we'd all been to, been together out on the road. You know, you know Keith, of course, with Ralph and me, with Jim and Jesse, and Jimmy with Country Gentlemen. And we'd get together at festivals and stuff and talk about, you know, we'd play music and talk about getting together, maybe doing something at some points. Well, we finally decided to do it. And uh, so we all met up in Columbus, Ohio, and we played... We played one little gig together. We went into, went into Rome Studios and turned on the tape machine, two-track, turned it on and recorded five or six different things, which I still have today in Treasure. Uh, and then Keith and I saw in the newspaper that Glenn Campbell was going to be at the Ohio State Fair. And Keith loved him probably about as much as I did. You know, here's here's one of those things again. I mean, I'd seen the Good Time Hour. I loved Glenn Campbell. I thought he was the greatest singer I'd ever heard, and and I was right. He was, uh, incredible guitar player. And so here he is, gonna be at the Ohio State Fair in the same town where I am. And me and Keith, we have to go. So we do. We go see Glenn at the Ohio State Fair. And then after the show, I mean, we're just blown away. It was great, you know. 
And w- what year was this? This was uh, 1972. Oh, man. And uh, we see the show. We love it. And we just, then we decide we go out to the, we're going to go out to the Midway and ride a few rides and chase a few girls, whatever we were doing, you know. And we whatever 19 year olds do. Whatever 19 year olds do. You know, eight, I was, I actually hadn't turned 19 oh, yet. Oh, man. I hadn't turned 19 yet. But anyway, we go out to the Midway and then we're walking back to our car to go home that evening. And, uh, I glance over. We have to walk right by the backstage area and, and the track area. You know, is where yeah. they had the show. We're walking by there, and I look, glance over to the left, and there stands Larry McNeely. Larry was the banjo player with Glenn at the time. He had played with Roy Acuff before that, and uh, he's standing there uh, talking to some fans and signing some autographs and stuff. And so I told Keith, I said, "Man, let's walk over there and say hello to him." You know, I don't know if he knows me or not, but I certainly know who he is and you know so we walk over and we wait a minute and the other people walk away you know and I, I just stick out my hand I say hey Larry I'm uh, my name's Carl Jackson I just want to tell you how much we enjoyed the show this is Keith Whitley and we we loved the show he said Carl Jackson what in the world are you doing here and so I had to go you know we had never met each other you know yeah. we've been to don't opera, you know, I've been yeah. with Jim and Jesse, but we'd never crossed paths at the same time and met each other. Yeah. But it turns out he knew me like I knew him. He said, Man, I love your play and what are you doing here? Why don't you why don't you come by tomorrow and let's do some picking? And I said, Well, okay, you know, so Keith and I went home and the next day uh, I came back out there with another friend of mine, Danny Wiley, who was uh, in town and uh we went we went out there and Larry we got our banjos out. I remember backstage, they, the, there were trailers there for the dressing rooms backstage. And we got our banjos out, and we're sitting there, and we're playing, you know, tunes back and forth. But most of the time, uh, Larry's, he's, can you play this? Do you play this song? Play me a little bit of this or something, you know? It's, it's stuff like that. Yeah. I have no idea what he's doing. Yeah. And out of the clear blue then, you know, after maybe 10, 15 minutes of play, and, you know, he just looks over and he goes, would you like to have this job? And I said, what? Larry, <laughs> really? What, what, do you, what do you mean? He said, man, he said, I, am, I just don't want to travel anymore. He said, I'm, I've been looking for somebody that can replace me. And he said, you can do it. And he said, well, if you'd like to have this job, I want to go talk to, I want to, go talk to Glenn. And wow. I said, yeah, I guess. I, you know, I didn't know what to say, really. He said, give me a minute, you know. So he leaves, and I'm just there by myself, you know. <laughs> in a know trailer Danny was. with Danny, a banjo. Danny was off somewhere else. I don't think Danny was there. I can't remember. But uh, anyway, uh, two or three minutes later, he comes back, and he goes, come with me. I said, okay. So I get my banjo, you know, and we walk over to the next trailer. And I walk in, and there sits another hero you know there sits glenn campbell i remember it was so hot and glenn's sitting there you know he's got it still got his uh i think they'd already they'd done one set earlier in the day or whatever and and uh he's still got his stage pants on except for he's got a shirt totally off it's just as hot as it can be and he's just he's just sitting there man sweating like crazy stage pants you know? no shirt no shirt you know? and i'm like well there's my hero you know he's, 
he's sitting there, you know, and, and he goes, so, uh, so you, you play banjo? And I said, yeah, I, I play banjo. And he, and of course he put me through then the same, basically the same routine that Larry put me through. You know, it's like, well, can you play this? You know, can you play Foggy Mountain Breakdown? You know, oh, yeah, I can play. Can you play Rocky Top? Yeah, yeah, you know, we'll play, you know, has me play all these things, you know. Uh, then all of a sudden he, th- he throws, can you play Little Rock Getaway? I said, yeah, he'll play that for me. So I played it for him. And then he goes, well, do you play guitar? And I said, yeah, I'll play a little bit. And at the time, I could probably play more Glenn Campbell stuff then than I can now. You know, I mean, I mean, I literally listened to every record. I learned, I mean, I even learned the solo on For Once in My Life off the live album. I mean, it was like, I learned all that stuff because I just loved him. And uh, he said, well, play me a little something, you know. So I, I don't know what I played. I played a few things. He said, can you play the claw? Which was a Jerry yeah. Reed tune, very very difficult tune. Yeah, yeah. I'd hate to have somebody ask me to play it now. I I got my could kind of get through it, but not like I could play it then, probably. You know. And I said, Yeah, I can play it. He said, Well, play that for me. So I played the claw for him. Played the whole song. Played the whole thing. And he looks over. And the next thing he said is, How much would you like to make? <laughs> Which I, and, and the 18, that's a question you yeah, don't get asked yeah, every yeah. day you don't get asked the 18 year old in me comes out real clearly and i go a million bucks <laughs> <laughs> and he says okay he says you you go home get your stuff together you're hired wow and uh he says i'll i'll have my business manager in touch with you and we'll we're uh you're hired wow and so next thing i know I have to go home that night and tell Keith and Jimmy and Bill that that I'm I'm leaving the band after a week. What was that like? It was it was difficult that evening. It was very difficult because it was disappointing for them. It was hard for me because I loved them dearly. Yeah. We had a really good group. Yeah. And but by the next morning when they woke up and they slept on it, you know, and I don't mean we we fought or argued or anything. Yeah. It wasn't like that, but it was uncomfortable. It was yeah. But the, but the next morning they all were like, "Oh man, we're you got to do this. You can't." That's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Turn this yeah. down, you know. And there I was, you know, I'd sit there and literally, Daniel. I mean, I can show you my yearbooks. Kids in my school signed my yearbook, and I'm talking about four or five different ones. Signed my yearbook said, "See you on Glen Campbell one day." <laughs> I never even knew I'd meet the guy. But we're talking about signing my my senior yearbook, several of them, because the good time hour was huge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, they saw John and then Larry, John Hartford and then Larry on the, the good time hour, and they just they just put two and two together. Well, heck, naturally, I was going to be the next yeah. one, you know, and I was like, <laughs> yeah, right, you know. Well, they wrote all that stuff, and here it is. Suddenly, it's coming to pass. Well, and in the course of the fact that it went from the course of what sounds to me like hour or less, you went from just meeting up with the banjo player to getting offered the job just like that. Well, it, the the yeah. next the next day, yeah, the next day, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I met Larry, and then the next day we we're picking. I mean, when we're sitting there, within thirty minutes, I've got the job. Yeah. You know, and you didn't even, job you didn't know you were applying for. I didn't even know I was going to get to meet Glenn. I yeah. didn't go there. To, I didn't go there asking Larry to meet Glenn. I mean, I had no idea that I would get to. I mean, I was I was thrilled to meet him, you know, because he he was a hero, man. And uh, but I didn't know that I would. And all of a sudden, here I am. And I mean, the next thing I know, then I'm back in 
I'm back in Mississippi getting a passport because we're going to play two shows, the Nebraska State Fair and one other thing, and then we're going to Australia for three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I mean, here I am, you know, and I just, I turned 19, uh, I'm, I don't know if it was, I think it was right before we left for Australia or or right before those first shows. It was a few weeks there before. I was still 18 when I got yeah. the gig, but I was close to 19. Oh, I was right on top of 19. I said, let the games begin. And let the games <laughs> begin, man. And and then for uh, 12 years, 12 of the most wonderful years of my life, I traveled the world with Glenn Campbell. And there wasn't, there wasn't a show that he didn't feature me. Not one. He he would literally leave the stage. In the middle of the show, he would bring me out. We'd play, you know, a couple of things together, whatever. Then he'd leave the stage, and I'd play two or three instrumentals or whatever, you know. And then he'd come back. We'd do some more things together. I mean, he featured me. I mean, he put me on the marquees in Vegas. He, Glenn was so wonderful to me. How much did that mean to you, especially as a, as a teenager, to to – it meant a lot for him to make sure that he took time to shine a spotlight on you. It meant a lot to me. And and also it meant so much to me because I never asked for any of it. Mm -hmm. I I never had, I never asked for any of that stuff. You know, I see those old marquees from Vegas now, you know, featuring Carl Jackson. I'm like, man, I didn't, I never had a contract asking for that or anything. That was Glenn. I mean, he must've thought enough to me that, you know, I mean, he, he did, he, he wanted to do that. And, uh, you know, whether it put one more <laughs> butt in the seat or not, I doubt. You know, yeah. I, I have no idea. I don't know. But he just did it because he loved me, you know, and I, and I loved him. He was, he, was, he was just a good, good man. Once again, there I am working with somebody who's good people, yeah. you know. And uh, like I say, I mean, you, you're, you're over, you know, you're playing for the queen or whatever, <laughs> whoever. And had Glenn, yeah, well, Carl, come on out. We're going to do it. You know, it never it never changed. He was, he was always that way. Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a self journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the self-journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code Bluegrass to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code Bluegrass to save 15% off your first purchase. And now back to Walls of Time. What was something about Glenn Campbell that, that you learned or saw that might be different from the image of Glenn people have from watching the Good Time Hour all those years? Wow, that might be different. Well, I don't, I don't know. Because, something that, or something that might surprise people. Um, a lot of people don't know how great he was on guitar because, like with the with the hits and the, and most of the things they saw him play, they didn't realize 
they never got to see what a great jazz musician he was on top of just playing country or whatever, you know. I mean, he he was a Django Reinhardt nut. I mean, he 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 knew all of that stuff. I can remember him one time on the on the Midnight Special, he was on there with George Benson and uh, they did a little uh a little duet thing together, a little little picking thing, you know, and George was awesome now. Don't get me wrong, he was a great player, but he just thought he played a solo, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And then Glenn got a hold of it. It was like, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. So that's the way you do yeah. it, you know. They didn't know Glenn was a member of the Wrecking Crew. Uh, they yeah. didn't. Uh, well, yeah. I, they might. But st- yeah. even in the Wrecking Crew, I mean, you know, there were there were things that Glenn did on guitar that people just didn't know he could do. You know, he he was he was an amazing talent. He so really it sounds was. like he was a real student of the instrument more oh, than he people was. probably give him credit for. He was. And and again, a lot of it come naturally. I think Glenn was a lot like me in a, in a lot of cases. He he didn't, uh, a lot of times he'd play a chord that he might not know the name of, but he still knew where to put it. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> you know? He just naturally played, man. Played everything right off the top of his head, too. He never, he rarely played the same solo twice, which, you know. I get in a groove sometimes, you know, like I'll, I'll duplicate solos because they feel comfortable or whatever. I get something I like and I like to play it again. Uh, Glenn was a great improviser. He, uh, he was wonderful at that, man. You just, it didn't matter what it was. Just turn to him and you wanted him to take a solo. Fine. Okay, here we go. <laughs> you know, he had no fear. Dude. Yeah. He was, he was amazing. But, uh, other things, uh, Glenn was pretty, he was pretty natural. What you saw on the good time hour, that, that good old boy, country boy, uh, that was all real. Yeah. There was nothing fake about it. Wasn't that. a put on. No. Not at all. He was so natural. So good. You know, and he went, he went through some tough times later on, you know, got, you know, he got down the wrong path a couple of times and dealt with, you know, things that he, that he should have stayed away from, but he got away from that. Too. He got back away from it. And uh, I can never, ever say enough good things about Glenn Campbell. What he meant to me. A lot of people in bluegrass don't realize what he meant to bluegrass. You know How so? I mean? How so? Because there was never a show across this world that we did that he didn't build up bluegrass. Really? That we didn't do a bluegrass segment. You know, now whether, you know, we didn't have a mandolin and fiddle and, you know, hardcore bluegrass band, but yeah. he, he brought me out there to do the bluegrass segment. Wow. And he talked about, you know, I mean, he promoted bluegrass, whether people thought it or not, wow. to a much bigger audience than anybody else was doing. Oh, totally. Yeah. You know, and he was, he, he just, he was that way. He loved, he loved it. Wow. He absolutely loved it. You know, so there you go. Wow. Maybe a lot of people don't know that yeah. probably, but. When he asked you, when, when you mentioned that he asked you how to play Little Rock Getaway, it's like, okay, he's got more than just a, yeah, a yeah. surface understanding of this oh, yeah. stuff. Then. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Oh yeah. He loved, uh, he, he loved, he loved jazz music. He loved bluegrass music. He loved, uh, you know, old hardcore country. He loved anything that, the way Glenn always put it, he loved anything that was good. Anything that was good, which is, that's always kind of stuck with me. You know, people ask me what kind of music you like. And I'm like, Good music. I like yeah. good music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard you say before that Glenn Campbell's the greatest singer. He's the greatest of singer. all time. He, I, I would, I don't hesitate at all. And and I mean, there, I know plenty of other great ones. You've worked with a who's who of the greatest singers that's ever drawn a breath on God's green earth, and and Glenn Campbell's best. What made him? What makes him better than anybody else? What makes Glenn better than anybody else? that I've ever seen 
is the technical side of it. And again, it's that not knowingly technical, totally God-given technical ability. The man just, he had perfect pitch, first of all, and he was, he was amazing with the control of his voice. Uh, you just didn't, he just didn't sing out of tune. He just didn't. And uh, range, oh my gosh, his range was incredible. Uh, it, I mean, I, I tell people sometimes, well, you know, I mean, a, there's a possibility you might have heard Glenn Campbell. Maybe you don't like the sound of his voice. You know, I'm not saying that, oh, he's the greatest of all time sound-wise. No, I mean, that's personal yeah, that's taste. All, yeah. I'm talking about his ability. Yeah. I have never sung with another person. I mean, the only only people that rival it are Linda Ronstadt, Trisha Yearwood. Uh, I think you and I have talked about before a, a young lady who uh, who rivals that ability right now, and she probably doesn't even know it, is, you know, Charlie Robertson. Her Her control of her voice is amazing at this yeah. point. And uh, there are few that have that kind of control. Yeah, you didn't even get a whole handful. Listen off. (laughs) Yeah, Glenn Campbell was the best I've ever seen. And I I dare say, I I bet you if you talk to them, they'll they'll probably tell you the same thing. Probably, yeah. Because it's, uh, but you sat there for 12 years behind him every night. And not only behind him, but beside him. I I mean, I can sing higher than a bat now because of singing with him. You know, I mean, I was a baritone singer. You know, in the in the band with Jimmy and Keith. I mean, Jimmy was singing tenor. I was singing baritone. I remember, I remember, uh, I remember that day, um, the day after getting the job with Glenn. You know, after everybody had cooled down. You know, or or at some point in there, I remember us talking about uh, me being able to s- sing high or whatever. You know, and. And I'm like, well, I, I think I can do that, you know. And I remember showing Jimmy I could hit some notes that he's like, oh, man, I didn't know you could hit a note. <laughs> you probably didn't know you good either. <laughs> I didn't really. I'd never done. You know, I'd yeah. always, even with Jim and Jesse, you know, I'd sung the baritone parts, you know. And uh, all of a sudden here I am with Glenn Campbell, and I got to sing the tenor parts above him. You know, he made me a much better singer. Uh, it, it, it never stops the things he did for me, you know. What are some other things you learned from Glenn? Just either from watching him or from working with him? Well, I mean, like I say, when you're with him for 12 years and you go through pretty much every facet of what's going on, you learn a few things not to do, yeah. too. <laughs> you know? But uh, all of it, just, uh, I hate to keep using that word and going back to the overall thing, but Glenn was just the, he was the ultimate professional, man. I, uh, again, as we continue with Jim and Jesse, I saw how good he was to people how professional he was on stage, how he handled himself in front of people. And even, I mean, he, he didn't make vocal mistakes, but, you know, if he, if he made some little goof on stage or whatever, I mean, no, I've never seen anybody could just handle things so well. Yeah. He was just the ultimate professional, you know. And I, I just pray for any part of that that rubbed off on, on me, you know. I loved him dearly and uh, miss him very much. I mean, his... His daughter, Ashley, is my goddaughter. You know, there's, uh, once again, the ties just continue and continue. And even after those 12, 12 years, you guys still remained close oh, after absolutely. that, didn't you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We didn't, we didn't get to spend as much time together, naturally. I mean, I came back to Nashville and decided I wasn't going to take any more road gigs. You know, I got offered quite a few, mm-hmm. and but just didn't, you know, and, and did a few 
tours, but yeah. not, I just didn't want to take anything full time. I'd done that yeah. routine. I wanted to be here and, you know, write songs and produce. And luckily all those doors, Glenn opened that door, you know, I mean, uh, letter to home. That was my first top 10 country song. And I wrote it when I went out to California and, and wasn't good about writing letters home. Glenn recorded it in 1984, the year I left. And here he goes, I'm leaving him, and he's opening another door for me. He records the song and it becomes, uh, you know, big. Well, I like to call it a big country. Yeah, it was, it was top 10. It was big for me. Yeah, totally. You know, so, uh, you know, well, there he was again, influencing my career, you know. And yeah, and we obviously continued to be friends and, and talk. And, you know, he was on the Lubin Brother record, you know, the yeah. Lubin Brother tribute. And, you know, and I'd see him when I could. It wasn't it wasn't often. It wasn't as as often as I'd liked it to be. But then, you know, once the the, the goodbye tour happened and all that stuff, and found, you know, we were able to spend a lot more time together. Got to produce the last album. What was what was that experience like for you getting to produce his last album? Well, it was here we as go much again. as you lo- loved him as an artist and as a as a man. Uh, it that, was it was. Um, Unbelievable, an undescribable honor, because I'd, I'd always, I mean, you know, and I'd done a few demo type things on Glenn or whatever, and like I said, I had produced him before on on the Lubin Brother tribute, uh, a few things like that. But to do a whole record on him, I'd always kind of dreamed of doing that, yeah. and wanted to yeah. do that. And here now, here's a man who had Alzheimer's, and uh, he trusted me. You know, he and Kim trusted me to do that last studio album. You know. I mean a lot, yeah. and uh, and we had people tell me, you know, or they'll ask me that. Man, that must have been so hard to do that record. There were there were difficult aspects about it. There were difficult things to do, but no, you can't really call it hard. I mean, there was so much love in the room, and I mean, I really can't think of a record uh, that I've produced where we laughed more. You know, Glenn, once again, here he's going through Alzheimer's, and he's the ultimate professional. He's standing out there. Yeah, he's having to read most of the lines because he can't remember them. But he's still singing them. Yeah. He's singing his hind end off on that record. He's killing it, you (laughs) know. And, you you know, okay, we had to do that line by itself. Or we we might have to do, you know, he would remember a course every now and then. He He don't remember he had to. You know, he didn't have to read every word, but most of the verses he had to read, and a lot of them we had to do a lot at a time. But I defy you to, to listen to it and show me where it happened. Yeah, you can't. He yeah. was such a natural singer. He was so good, even uh, even then, that uh, the result was a, a record that I am so proud of and so uh, honored to uh, have been able to do that. Not only for me not not for me but for him i wanted i wanted more and more people to understand you know man what a talent this guy was yeah i mean we're talking you know 80 something years old here with alzheimer's and he's kicking everybody's butt yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah absolutely he he was amazing he really was were there any uh specific performances from that record that that really stood out to you well, there, I mean, I mean, the whole record's a masterpiece. Well, thank but. you. The, obviously, the one that that sticks out the most to me, obviously, is Arkansas Farm Boy, and is and there's there's some selfish reasons in that. Obviously, I mean, I wrote the song. I wrote it about Glenn. I had written it years before. We'd actually done a demo on it years and years ago, 
but the fact that he he brought it up really and wanted to do that song and also the fact that he remembered it yeah you know i mean he remembered the chorus on that song it, and in fact that's probably that's one of the songs that he didn't have to read as much of that one if that makes any sense yeah yeah you know he couldn't he couldn't stand on stage and do it without a teleprompter yeah. at the time or anything but uh he he had no problem doing that song and there were a couple other things that we cut newer things that he wanted to cut he loved the songs but we weren't able to do them because they weren't ingrained enough in his memory to pull them off you know because he he didn't lose anything melodically until the toward the very end i mean he had absolutely no problem with melodies it was lyrics he couldn't remember you know but even he remembered a whole bunch of the lyrics to that and the fact that it was my song about him and and literally taken from stories he had told me directly that meant so much and then for it to get grammy nomination you know icing on the cake you know yeah. i mean like the only thing could have been better if it had won yeah but that's okay you know it's oh. okay carl jackson on the walls of time bluegrass podcast what a great conversation man i was uh love hearing those old stories and hearing about uh glenn campbell hearing about uh, Carl being a banjo player, a 10-year-old banjo player, and getting his first job when he was 13 with one of my favorites, Jim and Jesse and the Virginia Boys. Jim and Jesse were so fantastic, and they have really got quite a pedigree of banjo players uh, that were members of the Virginia Boys. Carl Jackson's our guest today. Uh, Alan Shelton of the Bluegrass Hall of Fame, one of my favorite banjo players. Mike Scott worked with the Virginia Boys for a long time. Uh, such a, a pedigreed history uh, with that band, and Carl Jackson was a big part of it for a long time. Yeah, I love to hear you know, firsthand what it was like to be in that band, hear about... Uh, what great guys, what great gentlemen they were. Of course, love hearing about Jesse's innovative and groundbreaking mandolin picking. As a mandolin player yourself, that probably was really wetting your whistle. Oh, yeah. Jesse McReynolds was always one of those heroes of anyone who has ever tried to play the mandolin. I mean, the fantastic split string that Carl was talking about, you know, the cross picking. Uh, just great to hear that from somebody inside the band who was backing him up. It might be the only Bluegrass Hall of Famer to play on a record with The Doors. Yeah, what's up with that? <laughs> only Jesse McReynolds, right? <laughs> He's breaking through to the other side. I wonder what that was like. Jesse McReynolds and Jim Morrison. Hey, Jim and Jesse, right? <laughs> Jim and Jesse. The J Jim and Jesse were one of the most uh, commercial bluegrass bands of their era. Of course, were members of the Opry. They were on Capitol Records, and Capitol... Uh, really uh, took a shot with Jim and Jesse. Uh, Capital is one of the reasons that they went by Jim and Jesse and not the McReynolds brothers. I know I've heard uh, Jesse talk about Ken Nelson saying, well, we've already got the Osborne brothers. Of course, we've already had the Monroe brothers, the Delmore brothers. Let's make you guys stand out. So they did that with their name right off the bat. But even their choices of material, you know, they did a whole album of Chuck Berry songs. They turned Johnny Be Good into a bluegrass hit. Uh, and... They had such great original songs as well, so it's great to shine a light on Jim and Jesse with Carl Jackson as our special guest this week. Yeah, and we'll try to dig up some uh, recordings of Jim and Jesse with Carl on there, uh, a young banjo player who uh, those two gentlemen were able to shape, from what Carl was saying, shape his outlook on the music business from there on out. 
fitting because Carl is such a businessman, has such a business-like approach in all facets of the industry. The name of this episode is Carl Jackson, Music Renaissance Man. Carl really does it all, picking, singing, uh, playing more than one instrument. He started off on banjo, great guitarist uh, as well. He can really do it all and uh, went from Jim and Jesse and... A lot of folks, the uh, first time they saw Carl Jackson was with Glenn Campbell, traveled the world over with the Rhinestone Cowboy. I love the story of how he gets the job with Glenn Campbell. Yeah, what a great story. You know, he goes in not really looking for a job at all and uh, comes out with one of the story career-making uh, uh, positions in uh, Glenn Campbell's band and then to be featured uh, at every show and travel all over the world. And I think he even mentioned that they played for the Queen. <laughs> What a great opportunity for Carl, and I think it's just so great. You know, and I didn't. My introduction to Carl was as a producer and a and a performer singing down at when he was singing down at Station Inn on the regular. And um, you know, I didn't know about his uh, history with Glenn Campbell, so it was really great education for me to hear all those stories. And I hope the listeners like it too. Carl's pedigree as a, as a music producer and a songwriter and a, and a session musician. We dive into that. Next time on the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast for part two of our interview with Carl Jackson, music renaissance man. Ty, where can folks go to uh, to connect with us online? They can listen to us wherever they listen to podcasts, including Spotify and Apple Music and Stitcher. And of course, social media, Walls of Time podcast on Facebook, Walls of Time pod on Twitter, and our website wallsoftimepodcast.com Keep up with us on social media. We share Spotify playlists uh, that feature every guest that we have on uh, Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. You'll hear songs by or featuring the artists that uh, we spotlight. Also songs and artists that are mentioned uh, by our featured guest each time. So be sure to find Walls of Time podcast on Spotify and uh, keep track of uh, all sorts of great music that we talk about here on the podcast. Part two of our conversation with Carl Jackson will be here next time on Walls of Time podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to today's episode, be sure to share it with a friend, rate, subscribe, and review Walls of Time podcast on whatever platform that you are listening to this podcast. We'll be back next time. Thanks for listening. Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.